Remind me I said this in about six months, but I kind of miss the cold when it's really hot in here in the summer. Wowzer. Anyway, please take your Bible with me this morning and turn to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2 is where we're going to be this morning. If you're using one of the black pew Bibles that are around your chair, um, actually I'm not sure what page that could be found on, so if somebody doesn't mind uh, shouting that out once you find it uh, to let everybody else know, but Colossians chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, there are some white Bibles on the back uh, bookshelf there that are our gift to you. If you do not have a Bible, if you do not have the version of the Bible we use here, please take one of those white ones. Did anybody find that on the, uh, on the page? Okay, that's okay. But Colossians 2 is where we find ourselves this morning. And the title of the message that I want to bring to you this morning is Captivated by Christ. Captivated by Christ. But look with me at Colossians 2, beginning in verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him, who is the head of all rule and authority. Will you pray with me? Lord, it's a privilege to come to You and worship through song. We're thankful that You have even called us to worship And the words from Psalm 63, and we delight in singing to you, Father, Son, and Spirit. Lord, we're thankful to have your word, your revelation to us. And even as we find it here this morning in the book of Colossians, it's beautiful to have it. It's beautiful to look into your word and to hear what you have to say to us. And so, Spirit, this morning, as we look at your word, we pray that you'll open it to our eyes. Help us to behold wondrous things from your word. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. There's an old story that some of you may have read called The Emperor's New Clothes. Some of you might have seen the Disney ripoff movie, The Emperor's New Groove. But there's actually a short story that comes far before that movie called The Emperor's New Clothes. And it's in the title. But the emperor himself loves clothes. He loves new clothes. Clothes were his obsession. He would have his clothes woven together by the best of tailors. And like people who are generally interested and and, and, and into their clothes, the emperor enjoyed showing off his clothes. He enjoyed people seeing that he had new clothes. And so he would even change every hour of the day so that people would see his clothes. He would ride around in the street in his chariot or his his coach or whatever as people would see his new clothes. He loved to show them off. Well, one day there was a couple cons or swindlers that came to town. And they told this emperor that they could make him the most beautiful clothes imaginable. Well, of course, this really tickled the emperor, and he uh, wanted clothes that were more beautiful than he could have imagined. But these cons had a trick up their sleeve. They told the emperor that these clothes were invisible to two kinds of people. Either the clothes would be invisible to people who were not very wise, who were fools, or they would be invisible to people 
who were not worthy of the office, not worthy of the position that they had in the kingdom. And the emperor thought that this would be a great thing because then he could tell the people who were fools and the people who were wise and he could tell the people who were fit for their position or the people who were not fit for the position. And so he set the two cons at work. He paid these guys a ton of money. He gave them beautiful materials. He gave them threads of gold that they could weave into the clothes. And night after night, the cons would sit at their looms and they would weave absolutely nothing. They would sit there at their looms and they would pretend as though they were weaving clothes. They would pretend as though they were bringing it all together and cutting and cutting through the air and so forth. The emperor was so excited to see what the cons had made and he stayed away as they were working and he was so excited to see what they would make. But not wanting to go in first himself, he sent one of the most trusted men he knew to see what the swindlers had done. And so this man goes in and he checks on the work that these guys had been doing. And of course, the man doesn't see anything. He's nervous because he remembered that those who were unfit for the positions would be unable to see what the swindlers had done. And so he was nervous. He was terrified that he was unfit for his own position. And so he goes back to the emperor and he says, they're amazing clothes. They're beautiful clothes. You should see these clothes. The emperor sends somebody else, another trusted worker within his kingdom, to go and see these clothes. And the man goes in and he sees what these cons have been working on. And he too says, wow, look at those beautiful clothes. And he runs back to the emperor and he says, you should see what these guys are doing. They're the most incredible clothes that they had ever seen. Finally, the emperor himself goes in and he sees that these, what these two men had been working on. And he himself, of course sees absolutely nothing. But he goes with the two men he originally sent and a bunch of other people, and they all walk in and say, look at the beautiful clothes. They're so gorgeous. They're so beautiful. And so, of course, it's beginning to dawn on the emperor, maybe I'm unfit for my position as the king of this kingdom. And so he plays along and says, yes, those are beautiful clothes. They're the most beautiful clothes that I had ever seen. And so he puts on the newly fashioned, invisible clothes, and he goes out into public. And as the townspeople watch their emperor walk around in his arrogance over his beautiful new clothes, a child in the crowd says, but he hasn't got anything on. And let me read for you how the story ends. And one person whispered to another what the child had said, he hasn't anything on. A child says he hasn't anything on, but he hasn't got anything on. The whole town cried out last. The emperor shivered, for he suspected they were right. But he thought, this procession has to go on. So he walked more proudly than ever as his nobleman held high the train that wasn't there at all. Obviously, the two cons were swindling this emperor. The two men sent to see the work of the cons were lying Because they wanted to to save face. Even the emperor didn't want to be seen as not fit for his position. And so they all went along with this great hoax. But I begin with an illustration like that to hopefully help illustrate that there is a far more serious swindling that is going on in the spiritual realm. The empty, deceitful swindling, the philosophies and teachings of the world or spiritual fears that are flat out empty and void of the true Christ. 
There are so many out there with teaching that, teachings that present, present themselves as, as wise. They profess themselves as spiritual and knowledgeable. Yet when you analyze the teaching, you readily see that they do not even have a proper foundation of Christ down. Yet there they are. They're parading themselves down the road in their invisible clothes. And it's so obvious that maybe even a child could say, but they haven't got anything on. Yet they believe themselves and their doctrine to be something when in reality there's nothing there at all. They're spiritually naked because they do not have the garments of Christ on. And this is some of what the Colossians were dealing with in their city. They were dealing with a bunch of people who had these spiritual clothes on to keep with the illustration. Yet in reality, they were naked of all true spirituality. You remember that those false teachers that were running around Colossae were called the Gnostics. And the Gnostics were the people who were in the know, right? They wanted to be in the know. They supposedly had all of this knowledge. They knew what was going on in regard to spirituality. And these Gnostics, these false teachers, they would spread their false doctrine all around this city of Colossae. A doctrine that accepted Jesus yet added to Jesus. And so they accepted some of Christ, but they didn't accept in Christ alone. And so the Gnostics could not sing a song like, in Christ alone, my hope is found. They would accept pieces of him, but they would teach that he isn't enough. He may be a rung on the ladder, but he isn't all of the rungs on the ladder that lead to heaven. And so there they stand like the emperor without any clothes. And the not-so-sweet voice of Paul like the child in the story, calls out and says, these guys don't have any clothes on. Notice in verse 8 what Paul calls their teaching. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. And so from the very top of it, he's imploring these Colossians, don't be taken captive by this kind of stuff. They're naked. They discarded the garments of Christ's righteousness for invisible nothingness. And so the first point that I want to show you from these three verses, verses 8 to 10, is found in verse 8. The emptiness of Christ plus something else philosophy. The emptiness of Christ plus something else philosophy. Notice that Paul is very careful to describe the kind of philosophy that he abhors. Paul doesn't hate sound philosophy. He hates the kind of the philosophy that very simply, at the end of verse 8, is not according to Christ. The Apostle Paul is the kind of guy that you meet him for about 30 seconds and you see that he is totally enthralled. He is totally captivated by Christ. So if you're having a conversation with Paul, and you say that you need something else added on top of Jesus in order to please God or to get to heaven or whatever else. Paul's coming after you. He loves his Lord. And he's saying any kind of philosophy that isn't according to the Lord, it isn't according to Christ, is a bogus philosophy. And so he's not saying that philosophy in itself is bad, but philosophy that is not according to Christ is bad. For instance, if you were to go and receive a PhD in a certain field, the the PH stands for philosophy. And so you could get a a PhD from a respected seminary somewhere in the Bible. You could get a PhD, a doctor of philosophy in theology, which would be wonderful if you want to go and get your PhD in, in the Word. 
In fact, there have been many important Christian philosophers throughout the history of the church. Even more recent ones like Francis Schaeffer or Cornelius Van Til or even men like C.S. Lewis or men of an older time from a few hundreds ago like Jonathan Edwards and so forth. Men who were really stalwarts of the faith and have thought through things, thought through life, the existence of man, where we're going, where we've come from, all of those questions from a uniquely Christian perspective. They had a philosophy that was according to the way of Christ. And so it's not biblical philosophy that the apostle doesn't want us to be captive by. It's not the philosophy of Christ that he's warning of. It's philosophy that is not according to Christ. It's the kind of philosophy that he says there in verse 8 is empty. And it is deceitful. It's according to human tradition. It's according to the elemental spirits. Maybe some kind of demonic presence within the philosophy. I liked what Matthew Henry said about the philosophy of man. He said, while it pleases men's fancies, it ruins their faith. While, it, while philosophy pleases the fancies of men and women, it destroys their faith. Because philosophy tickles ears. It, it strokes egos. It helps people feel as though they've reached some sort of peak of intelligence. And so you find somebody who's really into philosophy and feels like they've got it all figured out. And it really strokes their own ego. But if it's not according to Christ, then the kind of philosophy they're pursuing and purporting is absolutely ridiculous. And Paul tells this church, don't be taken captive by empty, deceitful philosophy. One commentator said it well. What is clear is that the description is pejorative, or that Paul is disapproving of it. The philosophy is the product of mere human speculation and does not put its inheritance in touch with divine truth. And this is exactly where the rubber meets the road in terms of philosophy. Because I think a lot of us, when we think of that word philosophy, our minds immediately shoot up into this realm that doesn't really matter, right? It's all just kind of thoughts and whatever, who really cares about philosophy, right? But the rubber meets the road. And where your thinking and philosophy impacts your touch with divine truth. And so the problem with the false teaching that was coming from these Colossians was that it was based on speculation. So it didn't put the Colossians in touch with divine truth, which has the power to change lives. And so it begs the question, if the philosophy that you're searching through doesn't put you in touch with divine truth as revealed in the word of God, then what are you wasting your time for? Within verse 8, he elaborates further on the kind of philosophy that is troubling. It's a philosophy that is according to human tradition. This is a traditional philosophy of man that Paul wants to separate himself from. An old philosophy even. This is an old yet man-centered philosophy. The false teaching that the Colossians were being handed was something that was being handed to them from previous generations. That this is a traditional philosophy that maybe their grandparents held to. Maybe their ancestors held to. And Paul comes right out and says, don't be taken captive by human tradition. The Colossians needed to understand that the doctrine being falsely taught to them had a human origin. And so if that teaching, if that traditional teaching that they had been taught had a human origin, then what was the point? It didn't connect them with divine truth. Or notice what he goes on to say in verse 8. The elemental spirits of the world. This is kind of a curious phrase and commentators aren't totally united on exactly what it means. But there is indication and even throughout the book of Colossians that there's some sort of spiritual or demonic philosophy at play here. We're very sophisticated 
in 2017. And so we often miss the fact that there is a demonic or spiritual realm that is evident, that is here. That Satan is continually walking around seeking whom he may devour. And don't think that he won't use, of course, higher learning and philosophy and thought to bring people down. But the comfort comes at the end of verse 10 where it says Jesus is the head of all rule and authority. So even the surrounding context of the passage, Paul has referenced these things already. And even though there is a demonic realm at play, elemental spirits influencing philosophy, Jesus rules over all of it. And so here it is quite possible that he's calling out the fact that it's not just a human philosophy, but a demonically influenced philosophy. But the truth is that so many people are captivated by empty, deceitful teaching that even sounds good, that it sounds even Christ-like. Friends, when you consider what the false teachers were spreading throughout Colossae in this day and age, don't assume that it was a philosophy that was completely void of Jesus, that they were just spreading all of this stuff and leaving Jesus totally out. No, they were including Jesus in their teaching. Like I mentioned before, they certainly were willing to include him in their spiritual mumbo-jumbo that they were teaching the Colossian people. But they were not teaching in Christ alone our hope is found. They were teaching Jesus plus other things. When you think of a lie, and some of you who may have some experience lying, I can remember being in the principal's office a couple times, specifically as a third grader, lying and lying and lying, and then you have to lie more in order to cover up more lies. But I wasn't very smart as a third grader, and so my lie sounded totally bogus. It was just a matter of getting me to admit it. But the worst kind of a lie is a lie mixed with truth. A lie mixed with truth. Because it's hard to pull them apart. It's hard to decipher, well, there's a chunk of truth right here. But there's lie involved, and I'm not quite sure how to divide it. I'm not quite sure how to separate it. And there is so much out there that has elements of truth, but is nothing more than an outrageous lie. But friends, we need to get back to the point of being able to decipher between the truth and the lies, and to be able to call something a truth and another teaching a lie. The truth is, just because you drive by a building, and it says the word church, on a sign outside of a building, it does not mean that they teach and preach the pure gospel of Christ from the word of God. There are so many churches that teach a false, damning gospel. And Paul has a special word for those who do so. Maybe you can remember back in the book of Galatians, and we walked through it a couple of years back, where Paul said this, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you, who want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. And we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. So even if an angel or anybody or even an apostle comes and they're preaching something that is other than the true gospel. Let them be anathema. Let them be accursed. That's Paul's word for those who teach a different gospel. Let them be anathema. Let them be accursed. And friends, there is so much error flooding in from people who believe that they are preaching truth because they include Christ in their message, but in reality they are leading people to hell with empty, deceitful philosophy that they teach, and they should be anathematized. I can remember one time when I lived in Wisconsin, 
And some men in our church, we would gather at a Bible study at a certain coffee shop. um, And there was a group of Jehovah's Witnesses that would come in and they would sit at that same coffee shop every Saturday, either before or after they would go out knocking on doors. And I can remember one of the younger women uh, told us that she was out spilling the good news. Spilling the good news. They were going door to door, spilling the good news. More like spilling a news of death. Jehovah's Witnesses. And we talk about Jesus. We talk about Him even as their king. But the message is death. And they do not worship Christ as God and Lord. They teach heresy. According to JW.org, which is their big website, they have a question and answer, a question and answer section. And the question is, do Jehovah's Witnesses believe in Jesus? And part of why I bring this up, because there's no doubt most of you have had... We're Jehovah's Witnesses, right? But JW.org, do Jehovah's Witnesses believe in Jesus? That's a good question. This is their answer. This is the answer on their website. Yes, we believe in Jesus, who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Excellent start. Sounds really good. Continues. We have faith that Jesus came to earth from heaven and gave his perfect human life as a ransom sacrifice. His death and resurrection make it possible for those exercising faith in him to gain everlasting life. We also believe that Jesus is now ruling as king of God's heavenly kingdom, which will soon bring peace to the entire earth. I can, I can buy most all of that, right? Depending on what they mean by ransom sacrifice. But most of that is pretty good. Most of us would maybe read that after a JW leaves our house, hop on JW.org, read that question, and be like, wow, they're really not that far from me. But it goes on. However, we take Jesus at his word when he said, the Father is greater than I am. So we do not worship Jesus, and we do not believe that he is almighty God. And so they have a bunch of truth about Christ. He's the king of God's kingdom. He paid the, the ransom for our sacrifice. He was a sacrifice and all of those things. So they have a bunch of truth about Christ. And then they add in the lie. And so many people get duped into believing and becoming a JW because the lie is made palatable by all the truth that they affirm. So there's enough truth to help you swallow the lie. The same is with Mormons. I've sat and watched an apologist on the street interact with Mormons in Arizona. And when you listen to the conversation between a Mormon and a Christian, man, it doesn't sound all that different sometimes. It sounds so close. And it's like taking that lie and that truth and just dividing it and cutting it and trying to separate it. It's so difficult to do sometimes. But then you learn that they do not believe Jesus is the eternally begotten Son of God and various other things. And you quickly see that it is a false philosophy. It is empty. It is deceitful. Most of you probably even have experience with Catholics. And they teach some biblical things. But you begin to dig in. And you realize that they do and believe all kinds of unbiblical things. And so in these various different groups you have some truth. There are some kernels of truth in there. But then you see the lies that are sprinkled in, and it detracts from any truth that can be found there. You see, it can be easy to look at our spiritual lives and say, okay, I have Jesus, but now I need some other teachings. I maybe need to add in some of my good works. Or forgive the illustration, but we treat it maybe as a cup of coffee that that is Christ. And we take that cup of coffee and we think we're going to make it better by dumping in some cream of this teacher. 
We're going to dump in some of the sugar of my works or some of this other teaching over here. And so your cup of coffee is no longer a cup of coffee at all. It tastes like creamer. It tastes like sugar. And the cup of coffee that had the once strong taste of Christ no longer tastes like him at all. But this is not how we learned Christ. Even in Colossae, why was the teaching that was going on around in Colossae so wrong? Why was it error? Because they were teaching that Jesus was not God. This is so evident within the book of Colossians. Teaching that he wasn't God or teaching that he wasn't equal with God. That he was actually less than God. Which is why they didn't take him as all they needed. This is why Paul is constantly bringing them back to the greatness of Jesus within this letter. So Paul says there's empty and deceitful teaching going on. And it's empty because it's teaching that Jesus is less than God. It's teaching, it's empty because of this fact in verse 9. The fullness of God dwells in Christ He is God. Look there in verse 9. For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So the teaching that they were receiving, the philosophy that was being spread around in Colossae, was not according to Christ. And what's the problem with that? The problem is that we preach Christ. We preach Christ. The likelihood here is that false teachers don't teach that Jesus is wrong in and of himself. But the indication is that they are teaching that Jesus plus stuff. Jesus plus works. Jesus plus, as we'll see later in this chapter, Jesus plus the worship of angels. Or Jesus plus Sabbath keeping. Or Jesus plus ritualistic understandings. Failing to realize what has recently been coined in a book. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. That's the math. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Look again in verse 9. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So verse 8. Let me remind you not to be taken captive by this empty, deceitful, human tradition, philosophy. Verse 9. Let me remind you of the fullness of God in Christ. The Nicene Creed described long ago that Jesus is God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance of the Father, by whom all things were made. And this verse 9 brings us back again to the great truths found in chapter 1 and verses 15 to 20 yet again, concerning the great teachings of the Lord. Jesus is preeminent. He's sovereign. He's over all. He's over the church. He's the creator. He is all of these things. He is God in the flesh. What we make so much of at Christmas time is is so radically true. That the begotten eternal son of God took on flesh. The fullness of God dwelling in his body. Another name, of course, of Jesus when he is born is Emmanuel, right? Which means God with us. And I'm not going to sit here too long because we've gone in depth on this already in chapter 1. But watch how Paul moves on in verse 10. So he talks about how the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Jesus. Verse 10. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. So you notice a bit of a sandwich between verses 9 and 10. In him the whole fullness of God was pleased to dwell being one slice of bread. He's the head of all rule and authority, being the other slice of bread. And then in the middle, you have been filled in him. 
In Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells. He is the head of all rule and authority. And you, Christian, you have been filled in him. You've been made complete in him, would be another way to say it. I like what one author said. He said, in Christ we have been filled. And since he is fully God, Paul means that all believers have been filled with the very fullness of the Almighty himself. Christians have been filled with the Almighty God. Not making us God, certainly not. But filling us with Himself. Giving us the Spirit of Christ. Here you see the contrast between the emptiness of the philosophy in verse 8. And being filled with Christ. So the emptiness of the philosophy that was spilled around Colossae. And the filling message that's found in Christ alone. Paul is saying to these Colossians and to us this morning is that you have already been filled in Christ. Why are you looking for anything else to top it off? There's nothing else that you could take to top off Christ. We are complete in Christ alone. Christians, you have been brought to a fullness in Christ. One translation says, as one translation says, not because of your work, but because of His work. You've been brought to fullness in Christ. There's no emptiness. There's no deceit. There's nothing like that found in Jesus. And as you scan through the, the uh, four Gospels and you see all that Jesus has done and you see the entire Old Testament and how it leads up to Jesus and it talks about Jesus and it talks about the One who's going to come, there is no deceit found in Him. There is nothing empty found in Christ. He is God. He is Lord, and you have been filled in Him. And once the Colossians get this, that they are already filled in Christ, and Paul needs to remind them of this, they can put their false teachers out of a job. They can send those guys to another town because when they realize they are filled in Christ, they will realize they have all that they need. They don't need to be filled with anything else. Doug Moo says it this way, All that we can know or experience of God is therefore found in our relationship with Christ. All that you can know or experience of God is found in your relationship with Jesus. Friend, where are you in terms of your relationship with Christ? Certainly, I always try to keep in mind that no matter what, no matter the testimonies we've heard or the baptisms we've had, always keeping in mind that there could be those among us, maybe you yourself, who have not genuinely trusted in Christ. Some of you may be here this morning and you have never believed upon Him. Maybe you're currently swimming in a bunch of empty and deceitful philosophy. If that is true, you are in desperate need of Christ saving you and pulling you out of it. You're in desperate need of aligning yourself with Christ to to captivate you once again. Maybe like the Colossians, you're a true believer, but you need to really put your ear to this text. And listen to the Spirit to hear the kinds of things you may be buying into that you shouldn't be buying into. Maybe, God forbid, there's something sneaking into your life right now when you're not realizing it. But it slowly, as you take bite by bite, is pulling you away from the true philosophy that is according to Christ. Ask God to open your eyes. Ask Him to help you to see very clearly the truth so that you can distinguish between the truth and the lies. The truth is, friends, you could buy into all the man-centered philosophy. You could buy into all the human tradition in the world, the teaching of demons or whatever else, and you would be bone dry. You would be empty. This is why even over the course of this Colossians study, we've been careful to be clear on Christ. Clear on the point that we must be captivated by Christ. If all that Paul has said is true so far, 
the, the high Christology of chapter 1, the great truths concerning his sovereignty and that he's Lord over all, and what we've seen in chapter 2, that he is the great mystery that God has revealed and that in him are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, then how could you possibly be captivated by anything else? You have been completed in him, Christian. Look no further. Be captivated by Christ alone. We thank you for this text, Lord, and we pray that you will continue to open it to our eyes and anything I've missed or misspoken on, Father, I pray for your forgiveness and I pray that you will add the true teaching of this passage to the listeners this morning. We're thankful for your word and its purity. Oh, captivate us with Christ yet again. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. The last song is actually on the back of your bulletin. So if you do not have a bulletin, go ahead and and share with the person next to you.